Hello, this is Adrian Savino, and you're listening to Circulator. On this episode, we are joined by James Nelson and Brandon Polikoff. James and Brandon are principals and heads of Avis & Young's Tri-State Investment Sales Group, where they lead a team of three dozen professionals selling multifamily office and development deals. They have a combined 30 years experience, and their team is part of Avis & Young's top sales professionals. James has been included on the Commercial Observer's Power 100 list and has been named uh, one of CoStar's power brokers. James, Brandon, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian, for having us. Really appreciate it and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I appreciate the time. Uh, I know you were out in Vegas back now, but you know this is a, a tight window, so I appreciate you, uh, you, you joining us. Of course. I, I wouldn't say fully rested, but uh, a lot of information and uh, a lot of excitement to bring back. And um, j- just for the benefit of the audience, Adrian, it'd be great just to give a little more backdrop to Avis and Young, just so they understand kind of the, the context. So and uh, Brandon and I joined um, Avis and Young uh, almost five years ago now. And it's been amazing to see how much the company has grown since we joined. I mean, again, this wasn't even a, a company that was in the U.S. 12 years ago. Now we have 60 offices across the country. We acquired GVA in Europe. So we now have 120 offices around the world. Uh, we're full service. So in, in addition to investment sales, uh, we have a group that does debt equity. We do a lot of leasing in the office space. Uh, we do project management, appraisals, so re- really a, a full-service shop. But as you mentioned, one of the things that really sets us apart is that we're principally owned. So Brandon and I are two of uh, 750 owners of the company. So we, we love that environment where you know we've got a seat at the table and we're all working hard to deliver the best possible service for our clients. So Brandon, I don't, I don't know if you want to just talk a little bit about you know how our tri-state uh, investment sales group is set up as well, because that, that's definitely something that differentiates us from uh, the rest of the brokers in the market. Sure. So, you know, historically, you know, in the company that, that James and I came from, it, the, the city was broken out by territories where it was a, a lot of different teams, you know, two dozen teams covering different neighborhoods in the city. Uh, we felt that you know, dating back about five years ago, the city, you know, based on, especially with technology growth and the ability for people to see information, we felt that the best way to divide the city was actually by asset class because there was buyers and sellers that were in different submarkets, but were actually really just focused on this particular asset class or maybe two asset classes. And we wanted to have specialization in each. So we have a group of two dozen professionals, um, that work with James and I, we actually have a, a unified sales team. So it sounds cliche, but I think what's really different about our group is every single broker on our team participates in every single transaction financially. Uh, what it does is it, it keeps everyone's interests aligned and it also really allows us to collaborate in a professional manner because if one person wins, we all win. And it's, it's just driven information sharing. It's driven our ability to really cast a wide net and it's candidly been a lot of fun. Um, there's just like a good dynamic, a good energy. So it's been really fun since we've been here. Yeah. I mean, having a dozen sales professionals uh, that are focused on, you know, a collective effort is, you know, best for client now. Absolutely. No question. Got it. So in terms of just wanted to dive in, so great. I appreciate the uh, introduction and, and giving us kind of background on, on the company and, you know, your participation in that um, in terms of the, the market 2022, I know we talked uh, kind of offline about, you know, looking at Q1. So it seems as though Q1 has been off to, or 2022, I should say, has been off to a pretty, you know, pretty hot start. You know, just over 625 transactions total. You know, it's about a 25% increase from the trailing fourth quarter. Um, any reason why you're seeing this? Is this a, a dash to, you know, get things sold? Is this a, 
you know, a product of, you know, some 1031 in the market? Is this a product of what, what, what are you seeing as a kind of a reason for the, for the driver here? So, so maybe I can start with that and then we'll give Brandon the tough question about where we're going or what the second quarter is going to look sure. like. But, you know, the first thing I like to say when we talk about these quarterly statistics is these are rear view indicators, right? Because by the time a deal is negotiated, signed, and then typically a closing takes 60 to 90 days. So uh, what, what this first quarter result means is that we had a really strong finish to the end of last year where buyers were coming in, deals were getting signed, deals were getting financed, and then those closings took place at the beginning of this year. So you know, asking how things are going today are more real time. And, and you know, the fact that we're out there, we're so active. We've got over 60 listings in the market right now, over a billion and a half of product. And Brandon can t- tell you about kind of the activity and what's happening with some of the negotiations, especially with, with the interest rate uh, rise that, that seems to be at the top of everybody's mind right now. But, you know, kind of looking at the last two quarters, um, you know, very, very strong momentum, uh, without question, 2020 was really tough, um, you know, for obvious reasons. But as it applied to the New York investment sales market, our sales were cut in half from 2019 to 2020. And then they actually dropped further into the beginning of 2021. Again, that rearview mirror where it, at that point, people, you know, investors were saying, OK, a vaccine's on the way. The city's going to open up. Why sell now when things are going to recover? And so what we saw was a massive, massive second half to 2021. I think our team did six, seven times the amount of sales in the second half as we did in the first half. And so we saw um, that fourth quarter in 2021, we saw sales volume. And I'm talking total dollar volume and a number of sales in New York City, higher than any quarter in 2019, pre-COVID. And then again, in the first quarter of this year, sales, dollar volume, number of sales, better than any quarter in 2019. So I think we can at least say that we're coming from a point now where we have you know, recovered. There's plenty of investor uh, appetite. Uh, buyers, sellers are getting off the sidelines. And so, you know, we're very hopeful that this uh, momentum continues, but we'll uh, we we definitely have some headwinds. And so, you know, Brandon could talk a little bit about that or or Adrian, if you have any more questions on, you know, how the first quarter shaped up before we get there, happy to answer. Yeah, sure. And just for reference, before you kick off, Brandon, we're looking through, um, they were nice enough to share for the audience uh, that their state of the market, it was in Young's Q1 report. If you're an investor, um, if you're looking to buy in the city, this is a fantastic tool and resource. Gives you kind of a 10-year snapshot with, you know, regard to dollar volume, number of sales, cap rates, price per square foot, you know, highlights some of the bigger, uh, you know, most recent transactions. And, you know, it's very, uh, from a, a you know, uh, perspective of just uh, infographic and understanding the market, this is a super helpful tool. Good. So, and Adrian, why, why don't I just give some of those statistics? Yeah, please. You want to dive into the more granular no, stuff? No, yeah, totally. So, and James does an incredible job giving a, a high level view. And I think the rear view mirror uh, perspective is, is really critical. And that's what I was going to chime in on is, so if you look, you know, again, if we're just focusing on Manhattan and this is, you know, our, our, our reports focus on 5 million and above, this will include a couple $3 million sales, but in Q4 in Manhattan, we saw 114 trades. In Q1, we saw 81. In April, we saw 16. If you spread that across May and June, that comes to 48 sales. That's a reduction in 41% uh, from Q1. And 
I think when we look at transaction volume, it's really just the product of the buyer-seller gap. So what was really interesting was coming out of COVID, we had sellers who had been getting you know, offers on their properties for a few years, but felt like they were getting lowballed and they weren't willing to transact. When you go back to kind of end of summer of last year, I would argue it was the busiest I'd felt between that time period and call it February of this year. It, it felt like the busiest rush I've, I've had since personally since 2016 in terms of just activity, interest, sellers, buyers, everyone just really, I don't want to say coming together to, to transact. And what was happening was you could buy, you know, buyers were already um, underwriting extensive, extensive growth across, you know, what they were purchasing. Just understanding that the city really was going to come back. They were finally underwriting with confidence and really pricing is just a metric of assumptions. Um, and interest rates were also at historical lows. At the same time, sellers were saying, hey, look, you know, I haven't seen this pricing in two years. I'm ready to rock. Um, and maybe they were waiting, you know, for that time period. As time has gone on, you know, a lot of these rent rolls uh, really across any asset class and even in the development market, you know, condo sales, everything's really recovered to, in some cases, a higher than pre-COVID level, obviously putting, you know, office aside, depending on the type of office product. Uh, so what you ended up seeing was the seller's pricing expectations got higher. The buyer's pricing, they were already pricing in that growth. But now interest rates are 100 basis points or more higher. And it's it's leading actually to a plateau in, in, in pricing or, I guess, assumptions and, and return metrics, which is causing this kind of, you know, uh, separation again that we were, you know, trying to finally narrow. And, and now we're seeing the separation again. So from a contract signings perspective, can say anecdotally, it's definitely gone down dramatically. With that being said, we've found a lot of success recently in selling to, and this might sound interesting, but we've most of the transactions we've done in the last month or two, high net worth individuals, 1031 buyers, uh, we spend a lot of time focusing on who the best buyers are in this type of market. And generally for our clients, we're looking for what we call the outlier. And that person who is, they're less sensitive to you know, a specific cash on cash return. They're looking to park their money in a great asset. And that's what we have to offer. Um, and again, I think going back to that thing I said at the beginning about our team, there's 24 of us looking for those unique buyers. So it really gives us the ability to plug and play buyers into the right opportunities. Yeah. So talk, talk a little more about interest rates, you know, investors expect the fed to continue, you know, rising these rates. Um, the federal, you know, fund rate will be what end of year 2.75 to three. How does that kind of trickle down into our market? What does that do to, you know, cost of money? And how does that kind of drive the, the, the market? James, I'll let you take it. Sure. So, so here we are. Sure. So here we are, May 25th. And I, and I, I should note that uh, the 10-year treasury has actually come down a bit. So, you know, it, it's uh, I think a lot we're expecting uh, that this is just going to continue to be a run up. But, yeah, I mean, it has uh, and it's out now showing some signs of kind of tightening back in. But. You know, as far as the impact of uh, rising interest rates on real estate values, uh, cap rates specifically, it's really specific to the asset class and the type of hold. It, it's, you know, you, you can't make a general statement that cap rates are just going to move lockstep barrel with interest rates. So, look, for longer term cash flowing deals, we sell a lot of retail. We sell a lot of triple net assets where you're just locking in 10 year cash flow. 
sure for that um if interest rates go up that's going to put some upward pressure on cattle oh sorry no, you're uh, branding sorry maybe you can we got in. you I, 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 got a, a siren back as well but what, what i was trying to say is the longer term cash flowing assets are going to be more susceptible to that but a lot of what we do is in the value add space and we've seen as Brandon just mentioned a massive uptick in rents, specifically on the residential side. Douglas Elliman reported that there was uh, rents increased by a third year over year. So even if interest rates, you know, the cost to borrow is going up, let's say 75, 100 bips, if you've got rents that have increased by a third and there's, you know, still you buy some of these assets where there's value add and opportunity to increase those rents, that ability to increase those rents are really going to offset, you know, the, 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 those interest rate increases. And then I think the other thing is just to look at this in historical context. You know, the fact that we got spoiled that for a while you could borrow money in the 3% range, right? So, okay, so now we're in the fours, um, you know, maybe even some cases north of five. Well, guess what? In 2006, 2007, peak market, you're borrowing money at six, 7%. And in that case, many investors were so confident in the upside of real estate that they were taking on negative leverage. They were buying at three, four caps and they're borrowing at six and seven. Now, we all know where that <laughs> went, so I'm not advocating for us to go back there. But again, I mean, the, the point is that our rates are still, you know, when you look historically, very favorable, especially when you've got inflation that's, you know, if it goes up eight, nine percent and you are borrowing money at four percent, five percent, great. You know, you're you're uh, you're outpacing that. So, but I'll, I'll I'll flip it back to Brandon if he has any more thoughts on that. Yeah, I feel free to jump in. In, in terms of the you know where we see uh, kind of the runway for rent increase, you know things are up thirty percent, like you said. How how long that continues is a, kind of another question. But you know, with constraint on supply, um, you know it, it seems as though anything that's in the market now, anything free market, is going to continue to. Go to continue to climb. I think what, what he was saying is, and this really impacts the supply side of the equation. So, you know, going back to that um, change as far as with uh, rent regulation and, and a lot of these units sitting vacant, um, it also has disincentivized investors from creating new apartments. He was, Brandon was just talking about the, the tax abatement for development projects. And right now the 421A is, uh, known as Affordable New York, is expiring next month in June. So as a result, um, there's going to be no program. And in fact, there was just an article that came out in The Real Deals basically saying that, you know, some of the elected officials are saying it might not even happen till next year. Sure. So the problem with that is that developers are not going to build. Real estate taxes are so high. Um, on a market rate project, they could run 30% or more. And so developers are not willing to take that risk to build rental without knowing that there's going to be a tax abatement back into it. So that's that's what's choking the supply equation um, because we are so underhoused here in New York. Now, on the demand side, which is why the rents are, are really peaking the way they are, you have uh, Google that you know just bought St. John's Terminal for you know almost two billion dollars. Uh, their campus now encompasses millions of square feet. You've got Facebook that just took 700,000 feet in the Farley Post Office on 34th Street. After Amazon said they were gone, they're coming back in. They're expanding. Um, so, again, this is a place where uh, 
people want to live. And that's always something as much as we see, you know, a lot of that investor demand go down into the southeast and some of these, you know, kind of up and coming cities. But the problem is you get there. And if you are planning to have people come uh, and return to the workplace, and I know we're going to get to that because that's one of the topics you want to talk about, you don't have uh, the, the employment base there. You just don't have the people to, you know, the skilled labor to fill some of these important positions. And that's why I think just tech is just one industry is driving so much of the demand here in New York. Right. And me and Brandon were talking offline about the, um, in terms of like future supply, the project that, uh, 145, and that's kind of in the balance here in terms of, you know, delivering more affordable housing and housing in general. Um, you know, I think the, the developer offered, Tenemom offered 40% uh, in terms of uh, the overall, you know, unit count in terms of affordability. And, you know, the uh, local board asked for 100%, which, you know, almost seems like a, a negotiating tactic. Um, hopefully that's not a real offer. But talk a little bit more about the kind of the political headwinds and, and, and what that looks like to, you know, delivery of, of, of some more affordable housing for the city. So the first thing I would say is we all want the same thing, right? We all, there is an affordability crisis here in New York. We no doubt need more affordable housing, but it's not just the deeply affordable housing. It's also middle income housing. It's also fair market housing. So we can continue to attract young talent who's not completely priced out of the city. So the answer is not, you know, how do we control rents more? The answer is how do we promote more development? We have a more problem. We need more development. And so the fact that now developers are pencils down. And and one thing we didn't even talk about uh, in our sales statistics was land sales. I'm looking at the chart right now that we have for Manhattan development. And, you know, last year there was only 2 million square feet of development sites sold. Back in 2015, there was 10 million square feet. So you can and that's while there still was an abatement in effect. So, you know, I bet next year we'll be lucky if there's a million square feet that's that's on the slate for development. So, and in terms of some of your your projects, you know, we've talked about kind of the overall market. I want to talk more about something that you guys are things that you guys are working on. Some of the sold deals, uh, Cigar Factory is one super impressive, really cool project. It seems though as though the uh, incoming buyer or buyer is not necessarily sure what they're going to do with the project yet. Have they decided what they're doing and then Outside of that, you know, Crosby, 21 Crosby and 206 Spring. Wanted to talk a little bit more about that 1031 deal and how that, got, how that kind of drive uh, is driving a portion of the market. Yeah, so we, we've, uh, we've had a really great year uh, so far. If you look at last year, um, our group did uh, just over three dozen sales for about a half a billion dollars. We've already closed 21 transactions this year with another 15 in contract, uh, which will be well in excess of a half a billion dollars. And we're only halfway through. So we're, we're very confident that, uh, this is going to be a really strong year. We're actually bringing out, uh, another 19 properties, we, wow. you know, right after Memorial Day. Yeah. So we, we've got a lot of opportunity. And look, some of that might be sellers who say, hey, with rates going up, maybe I missed the top of the market. Let me try to, you know, jump in and see if we can transact. And, you know, there's a lot of capital out there. So, um, you know, I think to Brandon's point, it's all about, I mean, obviously you have to have the product. And I think we pride ourselves in a group of being realistic with our clients. You know, um, it's very competitive and challenging uh, to get exclusive product to sell. 
And, um, you know, some, sometimes, you know, brokers can be tempted to tell a seller what they want to hear and, you know, give them a massive price. And then six months later, no offers, no interest and in the seller, which really does a disservice to the seller because then they've lost that time. Um, the, the asset, you know, becomes a little tarnished. But a lot of these opportunities, you know, we're the second, third, even fourth brokers in. And I think the good news, to Brandon's point, is we're, we can find these buyers who, uh, you know, other brokers might not know. I mean, they might not be the first five or ten phone calls you would think of on a, buy, uh, on a property. I mean, with, with Cigar Factory, yeah, it was finding a, a private individual who was willing to, you know, take on this property that, you know, it's a spectacular uh, loft building that was converted to office. A lot of cool history there. But you know, look, uh, borough office has been challenging for a lot of the, you know, the the recent reasons and the return to office and everything. And, you know, so you have a property that's 30% vacant and, you know, this buyer was willing to take a long-term view. I think they are going to just keep this as office of, you know, for the near term and try to keep, you know, try to fill it up as best as possible. But what's nice about the asset is it also has residential uh, zoning. So potentially this could be a conversion uh, to condos. So, uh, again, but that was finding a buyer who wasn't really known, um, you know, in that that area and searching them out. And um, so we're happy to get that closed out. But uh, yeah, Brandon, why don't, why don't you talk about some of the, the recent sales that we've had uh, in Manhattan? Right. That's a great. I mean, just in terms of like flight to quality, both the renter, right, and the buyer, incoming buyers, whether that's via 1031 exchange, um, it's an easier, you know, uh, kind of pill to swallow and thing to sell. Thing that people are looking for, you know, high-end renovated units, and and if you're delivering that as an owner, um, you know, that'll go a long way. Um, wanted to just circle back a little bit on use of Cigar Factory, and you know, you, they have the flexibility to to you know provide office space, or it can be you know converted to like you said to um, to condos or rentals. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the, and I, I stumbled upon this while um, I was kind of prepping for the episode, but the Changing Places podcast. And, you know, the last couple episodes that they've done have been super interesting. You know, they covered the new office and how that's going to look moving forward. And, and they, they talked about dynamic retail. So with regard to, you know, flexible use, mixed use, can you give me kind of a background on each of these topics? doesn't have to be in, in super detail, but just wanted to talk through it. Sure. Yeah. And there, there's been, you know, so much on the, the return to office. I mean, it is such a, a big driver traditionally, right? The people who come into the office or the people who are renting apartments and shopping and, you know, driving retail. And so this is, we've never seen this before where you've got, you know, this massive upswing in residential where office, you know, look in, in New York City right now, there's almost 20% availability. That's 100 million square feet unaccounted for. And, you know, uh, a stable market is 10% vacancy, right? So um, if you look at where the activity right now, there absolutely is a flight to quality. Uh, so certainly with the Class A trophy, but that also means with the amenity spaces. And, and uh, Nick Axford, our uh, head of, of Global Insight, They've actually studied the quality of the buildings and it's not just, you know, that it's class A, but what, you know, what, what makes it that and how does the space break out? And it's not just, you know, how much, you know, amenities they have, but what is the quality of the space made from an ESG standpoint, light and air, fresh air, access to outdoor space. 
And they've been able to show those buildings actually perform better on a return to office. So in other words, if you give people a reason to show up, they'll come back. But, you know, a lot of it also just has to do with the sector. I mean, Brandon and I, we're we're obviously in real estate. We're in the office every single day, you know, and we do a lot of collaborative work. I don't know how you could possibly do what we do uh, remotely. It just doesn't work Uh, on a Zoom you know, sure, you can have one person talking to the whole crowd at once and people kind of, you know, tr- trying to take their turn at the mic, but you don't get kind of the back and forth. You don't get that water cooler talk, no. which is where a lot of these ideas come up. So, you know, look, are, are we going to, is, is, are we ever going to return to a five day work week? I think it's going to be somewhere uh, in between. And that's another thing that our insight group studied is what do employees want and what do employers work? So employees, surprisingly said, look, I'd like to come into the office two and a half days a week. And employers said, you know what, I'd probably be okay with a four day work week. And so what we're seeing, and they've been tracking this every, you know, since COVID quarterly, and you're seeing this convergence where they think it's going to end up probably settling around three and a half days a week on average. And, you know, that'll probably work. One of the, you know, there's been so much talk on this. One of the most interesting sound bites I heard was, um, you know, look, right now, the employees in many cases are driving the shot, calling the shots, right? There's a talent war. So the tech companies don't want to force people to come back because if not, they'll leave and go to the competitor, right? But the question is, now things are starting to, you know, change. You know, we see the drops in the stock market, obviously the impact on inflation, rising rates. You know, I'm not going to use the R word here, but you know, let, let's say business starts to slow down and companies are not so gung-ho about, um, you know, bringing in more, um, more employees. And if it, I mean, in some cases, if there's cuts, right. And we're, we're now seeing that in the industrial space, even in the lending side, I, I saw some of these companies are starting to lay off people. Uh, you know, you're going to look around, you're going to say, okay, who, who am I going to keep in the office? It's going to be the people who are showing right. up. So again, when, when it's, uh, when it's a market where, uh, you know, there's a talent war, you know, sure, employees are going to be able to have, you know, drive more flexibility. But as things start to get more challenging, and I think, look, especially for uh, young professionals who are looking to learn, you can't do that remotely. The learning happens, you know, in the workplace and, you know, also with promotions. I mean, again, I, I think, you know, when it's time for promotions, I think, um, you know, managers are going to be looking around and saying, hey, who, who, who you know, who's putting in the hours? So, uh, this is definitely a dynamic that, that I think we, we've got to watch. Um, guys, this has been super helpful. I'm really excited for your 2022. I uh, wanted to talk a little bit about, on, you know, kind of a, on a, on a sign off, you know, James, I know you're working on this new book. wanted a little, uh, little plug for yourself. wanted to talk about what you're working on and, and how that's looking for yourself. Awesome. Thank, thank you for that. I, I could not be more excited about it. You know, th- this all kind of came out of, uh, 2020, uh, so yes, maybe some good things came out of COVID. For once in my 20 plus year career, I, I had some free time and I'm thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? And so that, that was where the podcast was born out of. And, you know, here we are two years later, you know, I've had over, uh, I think I'm doing my 115th show this week. I, I've interviewed some of the, you know, the legends in, in the industry. I've learned so much. And um, so, you know, kind of taking some of this feedback and then also my experience, not only as a, uh, as a broker, having seen, you know, thousands of transactions, what works, what doesn't work, my own personal investing experience. And, you know, started to look around and 
realized that there's really no book out there that teaches you how to invest in commercial real estate. You know, there's a lot of, you know, kind of uh, how to, you know, fix it, flip it, you know, kind of that, you know, entry point for, for a lot of um, uh, first time investors. But to really understand how to uh, source an opportunity, how to build a team, how to reposition uh, a multi-tenant asset, how to capitalize it. There's, there's really no book that's out there that I believe you could read and really understand where to start and, and what to do. And so that, that's where uh, the insider's edge to real estate investing was born. That, that's, that's the title, uh, subtitle, Game Changing Strategies to Outperform the Market. And that's really what I love about real estate is it is an insider's game. You know, when I invest in the stock market um, and not a knock against my wealth advisor, but I, I always feel like I'm the last person to know. You know, everybody has the, you know, and even if I did, you know, everyone has the same information on what stock prices are, you know, by the minute. Whereas when you invest in real estate, um, you know, there's no law that a seller has to sell at the highest price. Um, You know, many sellers uh, decide to sell on their own off market. They can leave a lot of money on the table. Um, You know, knowing how to reposition a property, how to drive the most value, that's really the fun stuff in our business and, and the creativity and understanding, you know, what's the right team. I mean, this business is really about the people. Um, and so that's what this book's about. And we're going to be coming out with it early next year. And uh, I'm really excited because I do a lot of guest lecturing too. I, I've uh, lectured and I used to be an adjunct professor at NYU, but I've spent time Columbia, Wharton, Cornell, uh, Fordham, and I've asked the professors who I teach with, I said, what's the recommended reading? What books do you assign to the, you know, your master's students? And none of them could give me an answer that there's not. It's shocking because there's hundreds, if not thousands of books out there on how to invest in the stock market. And yet real estate, which for so many people is the largest part of their net worth, oftentimes their own home. They already have a familiarity with real estate. They understand what it took to buy that property to get a loan you know, how you can take that and translate that to commercial. So I'm, I'm super excited for that coming out in January, but I did rename my podcast to coincide with the name of the book. So you, you can check that out, you know, iTunes, uh, Spotify, where, you know, where, wherever you get your, your podcast. So um, it, it's been a lot of fun. And, and for me, it's also giving back. I know we've got a lot of college students who, you know, thinking about getting into the business and so they've been, you know, linking in with me and saying, hey, you know, I've been learning a lot from the, the show. So it's it's been really great to, to be able to give back. Yeah. So I mean, some real world application, right? Like it's a it's a more interesting way to learn. And, you know, I hope the book delivers that. I've been a huge fan of your podcast for a while now. And, and you know, it's uh, the forever evolving nature of the topics and what you talk about and how you kind of, you know, paint case studies, I think is like the, the easiest way to learn and understand. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the time from both of you. I know you guys are both busy and uh, you know, looking forward to you know talking in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. 56 and Wabasha.